Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Joanna Pocock to the podcast. Joanna is an Irish-Canadian writer currently living in London. Her work of creative nonfiction, Surrender, explores the changing landscape of the American West. It won the Fitzcarraldo Editions Essay Prize in 2018 and the Arts Foundation Environmental Writing Award in 2020. Joanna's writing has notably appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The Nation and on the Dark Mountain blog. Well, thank you very much, Joanna, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me. We are locals, as it were. I think you're maybe the first Hackney resident <laughs> on the podcast, so it's very exciting. <laughs> yes, well, I'm honoured to represent East London for you, Fergal. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I love your Twitter account with all the photographs, and uh, and and it makes me uh, see my location, my local area, a little bit differently, I must say. Some w- wonderful photographs, which is also a great feature of your book, Surrender, which I'm really looking forward to talking to you about. Maybe just to begin, if you could introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do. Yes, yeah, so I was born in Canada, but I've lived in London, England for, well, since my early 20s, I came over here. Um, and... I've worked as a writer, I suppose, pretty much all of my life. I've worked in books. I've designed books. I've illustrated books. I've written books. I've edited books. My life revolves around books. And uh, my first book was published in May 2019 with Fitzcarraldo Editions. And it's the uh, aforementioned Surrender, Midlife in the American West. And it was written, or I began writing it uh, when I was living in Montana uh, for two years from 2014 to 2016. And I guess most of what we'll be talking about today is what ended up going into surrender, which is a sort of lifetime of observing and thinking about uh, and critiquing sort of the ways that we engage with the environment. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And clearly, right now, we're, we're in the middle of a whole series of uh, concatenation of crises or, or uh, issues, predicaments, cli- climate or environmental predicaments. What uh, aspect of the current situation would you say is most on your mind right now, Joanna? I mean, I would say it's probably uh, a philosophical one around uh, the fact that I see very little, certainly in the mainstream, of an engagement with sort of joining the dots. You know, COVID didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, we created COVID and this sort of encroachment on habitats and our sort of disdain, our our lack of respect for our natural environment, which, you know, has led to an explosion of consumerism. It's led to a kind of a throwaway culture. And, you know, I, I so rarely see a kind of engagement on a philosophical level with how we should be living or how we should be thinking about our relationship to the planet as one of giving back, not just one of taking. Um, so I think 
really, that's what keeps me awake at night. Much of the focus, well, I mean, a lot of storms and weather issues increasingly, but also the, the whole issue seems to be quite often framed and quite scientific or technocratic or economic kind of terms. But as you say, that there are deep-rooted ideas and philosophies underlying our behavior, underlying our culture, which uh, contribute to the situation we're, we're in today. I mean, personally, when did you become aware of, let's say, of environmental issues? What's, what's your journey been about? Um, when I was very young, I remember being in the doctor's office. And actually, I think I mentioned this in Surrender. I can't remember how young, eight, nine, 10. I mean, I was still really, re- you know, loving National Geographic magazine. I had a subscription to it. And I remember seeing one in a doctor's office and it was had polar bears on the cover. And I remember reading in it that the breast milk of polar bears was found to have dioxins and other sort of, you know, man-made chemicals in the breast milk of polar bears. And I, 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 it was a real sort of Damascene moment. And I just sort of thought, oh my God, well, we've, we've, we've done it. Like we've, we've just, we've poisoned everything now, you know, if a baby polar bear can't even have pure milk, um, that's it. We're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) And my whole life I have been worrying about this and it's quite interesting being a middle-aged woman and having, you know, tried to write about this in the past. And, you know, I don't think I ever really found the right form for it. I'm not an activist. You know, I really respect Georges Monbiot and the people who, you know, sort of more activist writers. And I really respect the economists and scientists, you know, people much more sort of schooled in a sense than I am. But I think that what we do lack maybe is sort of writers who can bridge that gap between some of the more scientific or political aspects of what we're doing environmentally with a more sort of lay person. And, you know, I think there's an opening now for what we call environmental writing, which I think does that. And I I feel like it's time is now. Yes. Your book feels quite exploratory or, you know, open-ended. I mean, it's a kind of hybrid. It's creative nonfiction. It's got memoir, nature writing, I guess some criticism in there. Quite different styles blended or elements blended together. As you say, you, you before you were trying to find a particular form, how did that form emerge? Um, that's a really good question. So like pretty much everything in my life, it was a series of coincidences. (laughs) I'm not very good at planning things. And, um, you know, I write about this a little bit in surrender, you know, my husband and daughter and I, um, moved to Montana. My husband and I was sort of approaching 50, um, in East London. And we just really felt like we needed a change. We needed to do something, particularly my husband, he was really feeling it. And so we decided we were going to move to Montana. Again, it was a series of strange coincidences that led us there. And I was writing a novel and I sort of put the novel aside while we were there. And and I, I couldn't help but really 
engage with what I was seeing around me. I mean, Montana really, it's so beautiful. It's so stunning. And it just hits you, this land and this sky and these mountains. I mean, it's it's just a really extraordinary place, um, as are the people. But when you start scratching the surface of this beauty, you get to mining and the toxic legacy of mining, and you get to the absolutely horrific treatment of the Native people. And although I was on a superficial level able to really appreciate where I was, this sort of, I don't know, the writer in me, the curious person in me was scratching away, scratching away. And that's what led me to start meeting up with the people I write about in the book, lots of subcultures and people living on the fringes or the edges. But they were all people who were very somehow engaged or connected to the earth, whether that be in a positive way or in a negative way. And I didn't know I was writing a book when I started writing my essays that then kind of became Surrender. I had no idea. I was just writing what I was seeing and writing what I was interested in in researching. Yes. Why Surrender? <laughs> um, for many reasons. One, uh, on a prosaic level, the eco-sex convergence that I go to, that I write about in Surrender, was called Surrender. But also, um, on a more profound level, I feel that in order for us to really come to terms with our relationship to the earth, that we do need to, on some level, surrender with what it is to be human, surrender to the, the reality of what we are doing, because only then can we really understand it and change it. And, and I wanted to kind of get away from this idea of sort of progress it's been interesting how some people see the word surrender as a sort of weakness and um i just don't see it like that i see it as a strength yes it's not a, a waving a white flag as it were and it's got a deeper sense of that it's striking your connection with the the, the landscape and the changing weather and the I mean, the people in particular as well, but also it's, it, you know, living in London, it's easy for our sense of, of what's happening in the world to get very uh, dominated by what's in the news. Uh, we see headlines about various environmental crises and so forth. And, and, and that's one way of knowing, as it were. But when you're in Montana, when you're there, you get a sense there's a deep feeling on the ground, the temperatures, the bears coming out of hibernation early. So it's kind of a juxtaposition, as it were, of, of, of different ways of experiencing nature. Yes, yes. I mean, living somewhere where you're more aware of the seasons and the sort of cycles of life around you does connect you much more to it. It's very easy in a city like London to not really be aware of the sort of cycles of life. And yet, you know, you go down to the Thames, there are fish in the Thames and their stomachs are full of microplastics. And I mean, there's a lot we could engage with here in the city that we don't because it is a little bit more hidden away. You have to kind of uh, seek it out almost. And I think that's a that's a sort of larger problem in that 
you know, it's very easy in, in an urban environment to, to sort of disconnect. Um, and, you know, and this is where, you know, I'm not an activist and I'm not a moralist. I'm not sort of blaming anyone. I think, you know, we're all guilty or innocent, you know, um, to various degrees of, of being, you know, every time I turn on my tap in London, I'm money is going to Saudi Arabia, China. I mean, all our utilities have been privatized and are owned by multinational corporations. So I think we are connected and we are part of the web of life in a city like London, but perhaps we're just not as aware of it as we could be. You mentioned the landscape uh montana what were your expectations what did you know about montana before mm. you went i mean i have a rudimentary sense you know the rockies or a, a river runs through it some of the images and so forth maybe you can just give a little bit of an overview of what montana is i mean it, it, or, or some kind of sense of that and, and then i guess how how, how how met your expectations um yeah i didn't really know much about it before moving there um, the only thing I really knew was that Missoula, which is the town we were moving to, was a good place to write because I'd, <laughs> I'd sat next to Nicholas Evans, who wrote The Horse Whisperer, which was made into a film. I'd sat next to him at a wedding and uh, had sort of mentioned, I didn't know who he was, actually. And we were just chatting, as one does at a wedding, you know, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of moving to Missoula, Montana. And he said, oh, it's a wonderful town. Um, I wrote my best books there. <laughs> I realized that it was um, Nicholas Evans. And so I had this sort of idea that it would be a good place to go as a writer. In terms of the landscape, you see, I'm I'm coming at things from having grown up in Canada. So, you know, I understand landscape and big, big places and and all that kind of thing. But I grew up more in the east of the country. And so I had this sort of view of the West of the, of America being a lot like the West of Canada, which it is in some ways, landscape-wise, but politically is quite different. And um, so I had, it, I had this strange sense when I was, when I got to Missoula of sort of um, recognizing certain things about it that reminded me of Canada and yet feeling utterly alien. And it was a strange experience really and I, I suppose I was surprised at um how new everything felt in some ways because I'd been living in London for so long where I feel like words like freedom if you say that to someone in in London it comes with a sort of expectation that perhaps freedom is you know a sort of um is something that doesn't really totally exist whereas in the West of the United States, I feel that it's a word that people are still trying to define. I feel a lot of things are still trying to be defined out there. And that's quite an exciting and interesting place to be if you're a writer. Absolutely. And it's striking array of, of characters that you meet. And you talk a little bit about when, when this sense of uh, peeling back a bit the layers and looking you know, a bit deeper, as you say. Initially, it is quite overwhelming. The 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 actual nature, the scale, the the you know the, the wide open space of the mountains. Those those qualities, and your writerly 
exploration, wanting to know a little bit more and reaching out to different people in the community? So the first sort of, well, the first thing I did that ended up being in Surrender was I was just sort of um, looking online for courses that I could take. Uh, because I had time, my husband and I, we'd saved up, and we'd sort of bought ourselves some time to work on our own projects. And I'd never had this before. I've always worked like a lunatic my whole life. And suddenly here I had sort of days where I could think and read and, you know, um, write. And so I was looking at courses and I saw that you could that you could take a wolf trapping course open to anyone completely free. And I just thought, this is crazy. Well, I can just show up, learn how to trap a wolf, get a certificate and then head out and trap wolves. It just seemed mad. And um, I needed to know. And so I signed up and I went to this wolf trapping course put on by Idaho fish and wildlife, although it was in Montana. And, uh, it it really kind of i guess it was the first time i felt like i was surrounded by people who were very very different from me just completely different mindset and it's it's a chapter in, in the book and then the second thing that happened was i was reading the local free paper and i saw an article about some scavengers who go and live on the edge of the tribal bison hunt that happens every winter, although it's only happened since, I can't remember when they started bringing, maybe 2007 or something. I'm not quite sure on that, but it's quite a new thing for the tribes, for native people to be allowed to hunt bison, uh, even though it's something that obviously they they were doing, you know, for thousands of years, but um, then it stopped and now they're allowed to again. And there's a group of people who go and live just on the edge of this hunt and they scavenge for parts you know hooves and horns and heads and fur and stomachs and I just thought oh my goodness I have to meet these people who are they and so that was my sort of second essay and that one was much more challenging and opened up this idea that it's just very complicated relationship to um, culture and nature out there is very, very complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you've got the Wilder Babes <laughs> with, with a trademark. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. So she was, so the, the scavengers who I went out and, and I ended up managing to sort of track down the woman who sort of runs it. I say run it, but in sort of quotes, it's a sort of loose kind of uh, collaboration of, of people and it changes every year, but it's run by this woman called Katie Russell. And yes, yeah, she, she calls herself a wilder babe. Uh, well, she certainly did then. I don't know if she still does. And she, she was quite a complicated person and she's very devoted to the bison and to honoring the bison and to practicing ancestral skills. And this, this was a whole side of the West that I didn't know existed, but there's a whole sort of, it's quite a big subculture of ancestral skills practitioners. And there are people who really believe that, you know, in order to live environmentally, that you have to really engage with the land where you're living. And if that means that you then use or practice or learn skills honed by native people, then that's what you do. And it's, 
it, it, it took me a while to kind of get to grips with exactly what it was. Cause at first I, w- I was thinking, Oh, is this, is this a bit like, you know, cultural appropriation here, but, but it's not like I came to understand it in a very different way. So yeah. So she was a wilder babe. Yeah. yeah it, it, you get the sense, the complexity of the, of the characters and the, you know, they don't fit into our kind of cliche, but tend to, you know, right wing or left wing, a political position or that kind of thing. And seem to weave together, you know, a mix of different perspectives. So it's not quite so easy to, to just summarize, but to, and to write about in a way. But I think that's one of the great qualities of the book. You feel the characters and, and, and these elements together. I just wondering about the moment you were there and, uh, about Donald Trump. I mean, is Montana Trump territory? And and to what degree uh, was that in the air? Well, that's very interesting. So we moved there in 2014. So Barack Obama was, you know, president. When we left in 2016, I could feel the rumblings. I could be completely wrong, but to me, when we were living in Montana, I mean, of course, there is a a, a right wing, but um, it didn't feel Trumpy to me when we were there. It felt more libertarian to me. And I think, again, I was constantly my sort of any preconceptions I had were constantly being undermined in terms of what is right, what is left. So you might meet people who were sort of very right wing and you know very into guns and very christian and and very into family values and so on but then you find out that oh they only eat organic cuz you know they don't they're very anti sort of big ag and they don't trust the chemicals on the food and you're constantly meeting these sort of intersections and interweavings of things that in in britain you know if you're sort of if you read the guardian maybe you know one can extrapolate quite a lot about someone from from that or if you're a labor voter and so on but i didn't find you could do that in montana so i think but but you know trump came in just just after we left and i i'm told by friends there that a sort of trumpiness has emerged since we left you have a great piece in your book about the sorts of people you were just talking about. Can you maybe read that piece now? Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to read out a bit that I've never actually read out before, but I was thinking about it. It ca- really came back to me when the on January 6th with the storming of the Capitol building, because a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol in Washington, D.C., the Trump supporters, I thought, you know, I may have met some of them in the research for this book because we were hanging out with the three percenters of Idaho who are quite a big militia movement and so on. And um, just a short passage about that. This was written once we'd come back to London and I was thinking back to our time in Montana. There are worrying rumblings in the West that have picked up in velocity and power since we left. The various anti-government patriot movements of which the three percenters are a part, have gained in momentum. Just a few years ago, the people I was meeting at county fairs wearing patriot regalia were happy to talk to me, to share their beliefs, which mainly revolved around their love of guns, liberty, and the Constitution. They homeschooled their kids, went to church, and taught their children how to be God-fearing, resilient, and self-sufficient. Would they be so welcoming to us now? 
The ideology shared by these groups appears to be metastasizing in a more sinister way. Members of these movements have been emboldened by the loudest voice in the land. Donald Trump's rhetoric around race, minorities, women, the selling off of public lands, the disdain for the concerns of Native Americans, and his bulldozing of any environmental regulations is bolstering patriot movements. No longer do many of these patriots hide their racism, their anti-Semitism. They flaunt it. And uh, I thought, well, that was quite prescient, actually, <laughs> in the light of what, what's going on. Yes. Well, I, I think one of the other elements that I really loved in your book, uh, it, it's quite striking, should we say, is the, is the tensions, I guess, between, uh, as, as you mentioned at the beginning, the, 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 the extractive industries, the potential for work in, in towns and, and uh, communities, and the legacy of these huge environmental impacts still unfolding. Absolutely. And it's it's a problem. And, and one of the things that really struck me about Montana is that it feels like it's a sort of crucible or, or it can stand in for a lot of places in the world. You know, there's parts of Australia or South America, Canada, I mean, all over the world, Africa, all over we have these these terrible legacies left from mining, and now with with you know lithium batteries and electric cars, so lithium mining and and you know this sort of tension between civilization or how we want to live, and the fact that in order to live the way we do, we have to dig into the earth and destroy it, is a tension kind of at the heart of surrender, and I think it's a tension at the heart of. Uh, how a lot of us, you know, what what a lot of us are trying to to reconcile, you know, how do we live and not completely screw up the planet? And yeah, you see that very, very clearly somewhere like Montana with these boom bust towns, you know. Yeah, it's interesting when you you meet. I, I I've forgotten the man's name, but he 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 says at a certain point, you know, they have no idea what will happen if this mine goes ahead in terms of all of these people coming into town with money and what they want to spend it on and, and and what happens to communities when this happens. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a sort of failure of imagination. I mean, that particular spot, you know, that bit in the book, it's, so it's about this town called White Sulphur Springs, which is an absolutely beautiful little town in Montana, tiny little place. I think it's about a thousand people and they're, trying to build a copper mine just next to the Smith River, which is one of the last sort of really clean rivers uh, in Montana. And, you know, um, it will completely devastate the area. And you just think, you know, there's really got to be a better way. And yet a lot of the townspeople, even though the legacy left over from it will be devastating environmentally, are for it because they want their kids to stay in the town. They want their kids to have a job, you know, and unless we can provide alternatives for people, that's just going to keep happening. Yeah. And I guess that, that taps into this, the question of, you know, it seems a lot of the, the people who voted for Trump were people who felt economically excluded and didn't have opportunities and, you know, different reasons and so forth. But that sense of don't feel they have an economic future. Yeah, it was interesting when I was editing 
Surrender. I was editing it in the autumn of 2018. And, you know, the, the, one of the challenges, and no one really ever talks about this, but one of the challenges with writing creative nonfiction is that, of course, you know, the stories that you're telling never end. <laughs> you have to kind of you have to manifest a kind of fake ending. You have to wrap it all up. And, you know, Trump was doing crazy stuff in 2018. And I was very tempted some days. I think, oh, God, maybe I should, you know, work that in. And a lot, I mean, but I decided not to. And I thought I didn't, I, I didn't want to go on that tangent. I didn't want to give my energy to that. And it was very important that this book was written when it was written. And I think I mentioned Trump twice. One of them is one of the first things he did was he he destroyed all the um, uh, clean air and clean water acts that actually Obama had just opened up. So, for instance, Obama had added to the Clean Water Act. He'd added things like marshlands and not just, you know, oceans and rivers, uh, but he'd added other types of of water so that, you know, companies who were sort of spilling poison in uh, less sort of well-known bits like the Mississippi could also be held accountable. And, uh, you know, Trump undid all that. And I, I, I mentioned some of those things, but I was very careful not to get too involved in all that because I felt, you know, there are other people writing about that. Absolutely. I can imagine it. it's a vortex. <laughs> yes. Stepped into. Right. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Can you tell us a little bit about Venetia Medrano, perhaps with a reading from your book? for people who don't know, which is probably everyone listening, she was born a man in 1956 in Nevada, downwind from the nuclear testing and uh, sort of chucked everything, went on the road with her, with horses. Um, she actually pulled a wagon for a while, which uh, had big letters on it saying pulling for Christ. She was a Christian. She sadly died in 2020 um, on my daughter's, 13th birthday, she died of a heart attack, and she is the heart and soul of the book. Phoenicia was not interested in small talk. This could have been the result of 30 years of solitude on the hoop, or simply because Phoenicia wanted, above all else, to get her message across. The earth is dying, and those of us who do not throw off our domestication are responsible for its death. The type of slow, painful starvation I would experience if I were to live Phoenicia's hunter-gatherer life could be prevented by the administration of warm spring bear poop as a high colonic enema. How do you administer it? I asked. You know, with one of those rubber whoop-de-doo things, she said, drawing a roller coaster shape in the air with her finger. 
Those of us who are domesticated may suffer a fever from such an enema, but once that has passed and we have survived, our insides would be rewilded and we would achieve food freedom. Until then, I remained an ecocidal whore of Babylon, which is um, Phoenicia's <laughs> term for me and for a lot of other people. She was quite abrasive, but I loved her dearly. And we became good friends. Trout Unlimited. Is that what it's called? Yes. Interesting. You know, it's, there seems to be quite a lot of momentum around rewilding and regeneration and these kind of ideas. What was your experience? Can you talk a little bit about Trout Unlimited? Yeah, so um, Trout Unlimited, so the way that came about, so it's a, a charitable organization, I, I believe, and they are they go around the state of Montana uh, cleaning up rivers that have been destroyed by mining. And I just, I spent a day with a coordinator from Trout Unlimited. He was going off, checking on places that he had worked on, that he had sort of rewilded. And he took me to a river in Montana where he and, and his you know team had sort of reclaimed this river that had been destroyed. And it was really interesting because it, it sort of looked too perfect to me. And, you know, there were little tiny waterfalls and the, the, it sort of looked a bit Etsy-ish. And I don't mean this at all as a, as a criticism, what he does is amazing and it's, well, it's crucial. It needs to be done, but it just really drove home to me that we can, you know, we can't really um, ever bring back the perfection of a, of a river. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's not even something we should even be thinking about, but he was fascinating. And he, he just, yeah, he, he told me a lot about the history of mining and how there are still, you know, mining claims going on. And one of the things he battled was a kind of, I mean, he called it ignorance, you know, people just, just not making the connection between grazing their cattle on grass next to a river that agricultural firms are dumping all their garbage into and then their cows getting sick. And he's like, you know, people are just not making those connections. And so he spends a lot of his time going around sort of talking to ranchers, talking to farmers and just saying, you know, if you let me clean up your river that's running through your property, things will be a lot better for you. And just getting them to make those connections. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, the layers are, are apparent when you're writing about it. And it, I guess it's it's part of that, I guess it's slightly freighted word and nature. You know, when is it natural? I mean, it's a it's it's a magical world word in so many ways now being used for nature-based solutions, natural solutions. We all love natural things. Mm. But you know, when you actually yeah, look back in time, you know, what can you find the moment before, you know, there's some sense of the idea of, you know, before humans came around or before humans despoiled it in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I it's this is another concept that I really struggle with. I mean, there's this idea, you know, that, for instance, indigenous people, you know, didn't sort of touch the land, you know, didn't leave any kind of mark. And actually, indigenous people of the world have, have, um, you know, touched the land, have left their mark. And for instance, you know, Phoenicia Madrano, who's a big character in my book, uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt. Yes, yeah, it'd be great to talk about her, yeah. <laughs> she, um, 
So she lived for 30, over 30 years on horseback, traveling the hoop, which is where you follow your food source around the Great Basin, around, you know, California, Nevada, Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, that whole sort of area. And you travel with the seasons and then winter you set up camp. And it's how a lot of indigenous people lived in that area. And she was always very keen to say, you know, they they planted seeds. You know, they didn't just let the wild be. They were constantly interacting with it. They just did it in a way that was good for the earth. And, um, you know, and, 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 and she was not, I mean, she didn't like the idea that there were so many invasives, invasive plants and so on that there, but she was very much of the mind of let's not try and take all the invasives out. Let's try and work with them. They're here now. So we just have to deal with them. And actually she really opened my eyes to this. Uh, I started sort of, yeah, becoming more sensitive to maybe the more puritanical view that I, I sort of rejected of this idea of this sort of pristine wilderness that we have to try and go back to. I mean, this pristine world, did it even exist, this pristine wilderness? And, you know, we can't go back to it. So what's the point? I mean, we have to be realistic. That's not to say that we shouldn't fight fight corporate powers that are trying to destroy beautiful areas. But yeah, this whole idea of nature is, is a problematic one. Yeah. And it's also, as you say, this it's fascinating, and I think you allude to this sometimes, that this idea of maybe not quite a golden age, but a rather a golden moment, and, you know, might have been turned as last century or something like that, or, or thousands of years ago. But there's right. this kind of slightly idealized vision that right. people are trying to somehow enact or echo. Right. I mean, that was very interesting. Most of the sort of subcultures that I engaged with looked back apart from the ecosexuals who were all about looking forward good well we had to come to them yeah go on <laughs> yeah um, that's a little bit about that so so ecosexuals are just people who put their relationship to the earth on par or above their relationship to their fellow humans and the thing that really struck me well several things but one of them was you know they're not misanthropic unlike a lot of the sort of rewilders i was meeting who, you know, often you'd hear this phrase, you know, humans are just a cancer on the planet sort of sort of idea and sort of, yeah, sort of quite um, negative about humans. And, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to give up on humans. I, I like humans. Ecosexuals also like humans. And um, so, yeah, I went to this convergence for a week in Washington State in the woods with 175 ecosexuals. And it was it was amazing, actually, and pretty wonderful. They're very open-minded. You know, I, I'm I'm married with a child, so I didn't I didn't exactly go crazy, but the person I went with went a little bit crazy, and it was kind of fun watching her kind of just yeah, really go for it. And um, you know, uh, I liked them very much, and I liked the fact that they believe that we can heal our relationship with the earth. I don't necessarily agree with how they see us doing it, but I like the fact that they think we can. Yes. No, it was uh, an interesting uh, moment as well. I mean, there's such a, a range of different experiences. That's what really struck me. And 
I was just reading a, a review of a, of a book, I think it's called Bunkers, but it's it's about a particular subculture, which is, well, I don't know what you call it subculture, but uh, people who are preparing the preppers and, yeah. you know, and, and, and also the, the business industry of buying bunkers and preparing for various kinds of apocalypse and so forth. And what, what struck me was this a, a tremendous secrecy about it. You know, they don't want people to know where your bunker is because it's right. get tough, you know, you don't want people turning up at your bunker entrance. <laughs> right. You have an interesting section in Surrender about this, Joanna. Can you read that for us? Yes. I recently met a guy in Montana's Bitterroot Valley who had 500 gallons of gasoline stored in an old fire truck for the day when the banks collapse. He also had a bunker with enough food for his wife and four kids to survive the first wave of the apocalypse, which, according to him, would be the worst part of the end times. Have you ever imagined all those addicts storming the streets once the drugstores have been cleaned out? He asked me. Nope, I had never imagined this, should I? Storing dried beef, freeze-dried mac and cheese and powdered milk for the apocalypse was something I had always associated with those whose deep mistrust of government was aligned with the desire to have their own armed militias and their community of friends who could build houses, dig wells, and defend their families. Many of the people I'd been meeting at gun shows or in bars here in Montana had a fabricated golden age as their template for how they wanted to live. And the apocalypse was their doorway into this utopia. Their golden age was located in a small window of time in the late 19th century when the U.S. government was busy wiping out the Native American population, but had yet to fully win over the West. Ranchers could graze their cattle to their heart's content. Miners could blast for gold and copper from the mountains, and trappers could harvest as much fur as they wanted with their strychnine injecting techniques. No one told them what to do. That was the life. The conversation always seemed to loop back to the idea of freedom. Katie Russell, the wilder babe, and the scavengers were different. They had their own golden age, which happened to be about 10,000 years earlier when we were living as hunter-gatherers. Instead of hoarding food in their bunkers, the ancestral skills practitioners tend towards honing the skills that would allow them to survive from the land once the ATM machines have dried up. Both camps seem to believe that in order to have a future, we must craft it along the lines of an idealized past. So that kind of sums up those two ways of thinking that we were talking about earlier, Fergal, of these, you know. Yes, very nicely done. I'm wondering about the pervasive sense of apocalypse, as it were, or, or you know, deep concern about the future and so forth. And I'm also wondering about, you know, I mean, clearly it's a, a part of the environmental movement. There's been a lot of talk for, for, for some time about these kind of questions, but also maybe the cultural underpinnings of some of these groups and ideas, clearly in, in some of the, the, what we're talking about, the capital and so forth, and some of the political extremism, Facebook and other online networks have had a significant role to play. Um, I, I remember when, when we were a family in Virginia, Oh, uh, maybe eight or nine years ago, and, and they were kind of uh, 
not paleo, but they were back to the land and, and, and they were really into all this stuff. And they wanted to, before we left, do this really, this barbecue with lamb, with this kind of uh, do it in the ground with hot stones and things. And we were really looking forward to it. And it, it, it really didn't work out at all. And there was like the, the, somehow the, the, the soil got inside it and, and the meat never really got cooked properly. And, and it transpired then that that they uh, the guy who was you know organizing all of this said, well, uh, he, he'd taken the, the the thing from Ray Mears on television, <laughs> and I was like, oh right. So so his ideas about how to do quite a bit of this had come from the, the Ray Mears television show. Have you any observations about some of the the, the, the media or cultural or, or where these ideas? Maybe, you know, I mean, some of them are deep archetypes, aren't they, in the American mm. psyche of the freedom and individualism and, you know, no one tells us what to do and so forth. But also just wondering any any other flavors. Well, yeah, I mean, we're not that far away from the year 2000. And I think, you know, every time there's a new century, and in this case, a new millennium, you know, the sort of um, the doomsayers come out, don't they? You know, Y2K was classic and... Nostradamus wasn't that supposed to be 2012 or something that everything was supposed to end but I think I think there's many things going on in the west I think this idea that of you know pushing towards the frontier moving west and of course you know the the European settlers got as far west as they could next you know to go further west you'd go into the into the ocean and I think you know there's this constant idea of 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 moving forward and progress but I think that has now become aligned with you know, destroying the environment. And I, I do wonder sometimes if the fact that we as a species are watching other species become extinct, which might be the first time in the history of the world that a sentient um, species is aware of other species disappearing. I, I do wonder what that's doing to our psyches. And maybe that's partly feeding into apocalyptic things, but also the American West, there's a lot of religion and, you know, a lot of Mormons out there. And I do think that, I mean, someone, actually a Mormon out there that I, I got to know quite well, and I haven't looked into this. It's not something I know a lot about, but he was saying that in there, in the history of Mormonism, there is this apocalyptic thread running through it. Um, and certainly in some types of Christianity, there's a sort of apocalyptic, you know, the what's it called the the rapture so i think you add all that together <laughs> you're gonna get some pretty crazy apocalyptic stuff i mean i i suffer from feeling not so much apocalyptic in in, in you know like i want a bunker and i want to get away from it all with my freeze-dried beef or what have you but just you know it does feel like parts of the earth are dying and you know ice is melting and uh, I think one can't help but but sort of observe that and and feel it, you know, on a visceral level. Particularly out in the in the West, where it's there on show for you, you can see the the ice melting on the top of the mountains. Yeah, yeah, and and this these leanings towards indigenous cultural traditions and you know independent different ways of, of dealing with nature. What what about the the actual cultural life in terms of you know writing, music, other forms of art? I mean throughout the book is peppered with tradition of great American nature writers. But in the actual cultural life while you were there? I mean I think Missoula's an amazing little bubble and um 
I don't I don't mean that at all in a negative way. It just seems to attract a lot of musicians, a lot of writers. Um, I had so many friends making really interesting work. Well, they're still my friends. I'm still very much in touch with my friends in Missoula. And um, it's a real, the West is a, is an, is it has such a strong and rich literary tradition and it's opening up a little bit more now. I think there are more native writers, which is great. And, uh, more writers of color and so on and and yeah it it it, it feels to me like a very and it's interesting because you know I, I found out recently that Wallace Stegner who I don't know if you're familiar with Wallace Stegner he wrote the big rock candy mountain the angle of repose he was an amazing writer never he was never uh reviewed in the New York Times and yet you know, he's an incredible chronicler of, of the West. And I, I think it's funny. There's this sort of um, real snobbishness around work that comes out of there. But I think that's changing because people are starting to to realize the richness of of the art and culture there. Yes, yes. And, and, and into a more broader question, I guess, about, I mean, the, you, you, you talked about this at the beginning, trying to find a form for... Mm. Uh, what you you know what you wanted to say and and what you were experiencing and and our relationship with nature and I know Am- Amitav Gosh has written uh, about this I think it's called the Great Arrange- Derangement but talking about I, I guess in a way a kind of uh, um, imaginative failure he he sees it he's presenting it like that in the face of global warming and I'm just wondering what's your sense of 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 you know. Uh, what, what, what's happening that's interesting in, in, the, in the world of writing when it comes to, you know, uh, bearing witness and, and uh, to, to what's happening. But also we talked about the dystopia, but also imagining futures. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm not really reading a lot of fiction at the moment. I'm mainly reading nonfiction. And I mean, the books that really influenced me well influences maybe too strong but maybe gave me permission to write about political issues interwoven with personal issues which is you know something surrender does and I would have to say you know Rachel Car- a Silent Spring I still think is probably the best environmental book ever written and that that opening her very first chapter which is written like a piece of prose about imagining the world without the sound of birds, you know, imagining a a quiet world. And um, Terry Tempest Williams, who's still writing, who I would say has been a huge influence, her book Refuge, um, you know, she's still doing very interesting things. Obviously, Barry Lopez, I love dearly, Rick Bass. And I guess, um, I guess the writers who can engage me intellectually philosophically and also engage me in terms of just telling me what's going on you know what is happening with that lithium mine in Nevada you know I just I want to know that and and actually it's interesting because I'm I'm this whole idea of sort of nature writing I, I I've never really felt that that's where I belong and I'm glad that the term environmental writing 
um, the Arts Foundation just awarded me their fellowship this year for environmental writing. And, and I was really thrilled that I can now call myself an environmental writer because I, I see, you know, the importance of putting humans in there. I don't want to just write about nature. I mean, nature doesn't exist without us. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, and then there's a new a book I've just, just arrived and it's called uh, Trace. Uh, and it's by an Amer a black American writer called Laurette Savoy. And I'm desperate to get into that. And as I said earlier, I think, you know, it's crucial that environmental writing is opened up to maybe more mar marginalized voices. And I, I, my favorite book recently is um, Braiding Street Sweetgrass yes. by Robin Wall Kimmerer. You know, she brings her incredible scientific knowledge to her indigenous knowledge. And it's just this wonderful merging of the two. And, and those are the things I find really, really exciting. Good. Some good uh, leads there for listeners. And and what's it been like to return to the wilds of Hackney? <laughs> um, it's been challenging. I feel very claustrophobic. I miss seeing the horizon. It's amazing how such a simple thing is so hard to get here. Um, and, uh, you know, I find myself sort of trying to get down to the Thames, but even there, I never see a horizon, but it is lovely seeing some water splashing around. That's, that's kind of quite, quite lovely, but uh, it's made me really lockdown here has made me really want to get back to Montana and uh, to my life there. So that there might be another chapter of our lives set in Montana, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's been very extreme conditions, really, uh, the last year or so. Yeah. What What is next for you, Joanna? Um, so uh, I've just started thinking about um, my next book, which, thanks to the money from the Arts Foundation, I can actually start, which is fantastic. And um, it's going to be based around a Greyhound bus trip I did in 2006 and I'm looking at it will be an environmental book but focusing a bit more on the built environment rather than the the uh wild in quotation marks what the wild environment so that that's what I'm working on now maybe it would fall under the category of place studies as well Right, right. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that. And hopefully, as you say, I, I know as a jobbing writer that it's hard to have the time to to focus on, on, on writing projects. And hopefully this does give you some space to, to develop this. And I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda. Oh, thank you very much, Fergal. I really enjoyed it. Best of luck to you. If you enjoyed this interview, we recommend you check out Fitzcarraldo Editions, publisher of Surrender. Fitzcarraldo Editions is an independent publisher specialising in contemporary fiction and long-form essays. Founded in 2014, it focuses on ambitious, imaginative and innovative writing, both in translation and in the English language. Fitzcarraldo Editions publishes, amongst other authors, 2015 and 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature laureates Svetlana Alexievich and Olga Tukarchuk. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.